Hello and welcome to the Footprint 40, a podcast that gets under the skin of the sustainability issues affecting the food service sector. My name's Nick Hughes, Footprint's Associate Editor, and in each episode I'll be joined by my fellow Associate Editor David Burrows to chew over the news and views making the headlines in our industry, in company with a special guest. For our latest podcast, we were delighted to be joined by Henry Dimbleby, the co-founder of Leon Restaurants and author of the National Food Strategy, the second part of which was published in July last year and will inform the government's forthcoming Food Strategy white paper. The Footprint 40 is kindly sponsored by Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners. David, hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, Nick. Thank you. Looking forward to uh, this first in a new series um, of our podcast and a pretty stellar guest we've got lined up with um, Henry Dimbleby. So really looking forward to to having a chat with him. Absolutely. Well, let's delay no more and hear what Henry has to say. Henry, welcome to the Footprint 40 and thank you for lending us some of your precious time. Eight months on now from the publication of part two of the food strategy, how do you reflect on how it's been received and also what has actually been delivered with regards to some of those specific recommendations you made? So I think it's probably worth, I mean, quite a lot already has been delivered, but I think it's worth reflecting a bit on the context in which we find ourselves, because I think that has a big impact in terms of what happens next. So, you know, in part one of the food strategy, I mentioned, uh, you know, I said we were about to publish a kind of sit back observation of what the goods and bads that the food system produces and, and, and what we need to tackle. And then COVID hit us we were due to publish in in april i, I remember very distinctly having a call with uh, my secretary of state in defra um on march the 13th talking about you know food security and whether we could actually guarantee that we could get food across the country and then on the 23rd we closed down and so the strategy came off the back of uh, a period of where the food system had been sorely tested and had had been really remarkable in its resilience. You know, we managed to get all that food that was being sold in supermarkets in the middle of towns out to out to shops in in the regions where people are now living. The out of home sector, which supplies twenty five percent of our calories, closed down overnight. So we had to move those calories from the out of home to the in home sector. Uh, and then we had the real worries about poverty and food insecurity and the debates about you know how we get children fed. And just as we thought we were coming out of that at the beginning of this year and that we had a chance to rebuild and businesses were thinking, you know, I've got a chance to rebuild, uh, things are getting back to normal. We're now in a situation where the food businesses, you know, that I'm working with and a lot of your listeners will have the same issues, are facing kind of the multiple problems of um, huge price inflation on food and in certain cases you know as we look at what's going to happen in ukraine there might be outages of certain products you know a a huge chunk of our cod comes from russia so you know you you literally may see things like fish fingers becoming scarce or more expensive so you've got to deal with that a lot of the businesses that i'm involved with have got huge recruiting problems for the summer as they come up to peak season in the summer and on top of that for some businesses you've got having seen huge demand people are now more nervous because you've got 
people's pockets are being shrunk. So we thought we'd got to a situation where we'd got through the worst of it. And I, I know a lot of your listeners will be f- thinking, God, not another. You know, how many more years? I've done two years of basically managing a business in crisis mode. How many more years can I, can I get on, go on? Having said that, the reason that the food strategy was uh was published was because uh there were real concerns that we would not be able to deliver enough food to the population in the face of climate change uh, we wouldn't have food security and at the same time we'd realized that um that the food system is by far the biggest uh destroyer of nature it's the biggest cause of the destruction of biodiversity of pollution of water of water scarcity of destruction of forests of destruction of aquatic life with energy it's the biggest cause of climate change and it's increasingly making us sick it's 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 it was one of the major factors that led to such pressure being put on the nhs in this country and uh the nhs now thinks that by 2035 uh it's going to be spending more on treating type 2 diabetes than all forms of cancer. So at the same time that we'd be going through these crises, those long-term problems have not been resolved and uh, and we need to deal with those. So if you look then, you know, kind of what the response is and what the response is likely to be in that context. First of all, I'm incredibly pleased that the government has actually already implemented quite a lot of what we recommended. So on the back of part one they put in place those things to protect the most vulnerable children so the holiday activity and food programs which again a lot of your listeners may well be doing work on getting food activities fun activities exercising cooking lessons to all children on free school meals through the holidays increasing healthy start vouchers which give free vegetables to people who are who are struggling and then in the leveling up white paper that was published a few weeks ago the government announced again that they were going to do a whole load more stuff so they they announced that they were going to both uh, put in place the changes in schools really recognizing for the first time that food education and the food served in schools is as important as math not more important or less important but it is as important and also trialing um trialing uh what we called community eat well projects so like local interventions to see if you can try and get better food systems at a local level to get people fed better so there's a lot already happened there are now looking ahead there are two uh two white papers that uh that will have uh an impact uh where the kind of rest of recommendations and i think it's important it's not just recommendations it's kind of recognizing the paradigm recognizing like what the the reality is so it's both the story and the specific policies there's the national food strategy white paper which is due out imminently uh but i'll come on to whether i think it's going to happen imminently and then there is the health disparities white paper sajid javed and the department for health and social care are putting out a white paper which was which was announced in the leveling up white paper uh about how you tackle health disparities and that obviously will have a large section in food about it in terms of whether they're coming out or not i just don't know you know government at the moment is dealing with millions of refugees uh in defra where i'm the lead non-exec you know the big discussions at the moment are what's going to happen with food security if you combine both potential non-planting with uh sanctions 
And so I just don't know. You know, what I do know is that there has been, and we were expecting until uh, until the invasion of Ukraine, a serious and timely response. But at the moment, I think government's trying to work out what its priorities are. And that's, in my view, that's kind of, that's fair enough. Yes, I mean, obviously, given the events in the Ukraine that, that you've outlined, you know, devastating effects there and the impact that's already having on food prices, um, coupled with the ever-growing impacts of climate change that you set out in your in your strategy, is it even more imperative now that we get a really ambitious, comprehensive food strategy and the policies to match it, um, and, and not just you know a, another document that that ends up gathering dust on the shelves. Yes, absolutely. And there are, I think, there are two absolutely critical things that need to be grasped on the environmental side. This idea that has been coming out a little bit over the last few days that we need to forget about all the green bollocks and just focus on intensive production is completely uh, kind of specious. That is not the decision you have to make. The decision you have to decide is what land do we have and what do we want to use it for? And the answer to that will be taking the most productive land and continuing to farm it at high yields but in a more sustainable way and using less productive land to do other things. So you actually need to double down on, you know, if we're going to be facing... Um, energy crises and environmental crisis on top of the environmental crisis you need to double down on the farming transition and you need to think about the 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 single most important thing the government needs to do there is is to do the rural land use framework to be really hard-nosed about how it wants to use different parts of the scarcest resource we have which is our land and then on the health side the government needs to, I think they're very close to doing it, needs to rear, to get rid of the personal responsibility uh, framing and realise that we have a problem with the junk, what I call the junk food cycle, this toxic interaction between the evolved appetite, which makes us eat stuff that is highly calorie dense and uh, low in fibre and makes us love that stuff, and the commercial incentives of companies. Every single food CEO, particularly ex-food CEOs, know that that's a problem. I went to a a cereal manufacturer. They do actually relatively healthy cereals, breakfast cereals, not not, not wheat or, or rye. They do relatively healthy breakfast cereals. And I went to their annual board meeting, like they have an away day, and they were saying that, you know, at the moment they don't do kind of uh, flakes of corn with honey and sugar and nuts on them and that kind of stuff. But every single product launch that they've done recently has basically been adding chocolate to their existing cereal. And that's because that's where the money is. And they don't want to do it and they don't know what to do. So it needs government intervention. And I think if, if, the, go- if the government can recognise that it needs to use its land better and strategically and recognise that it needs more intervention... You, good intervention to break the junk food cycle that is uh, the minimum of what it needs to do kind of over the next six months do you think there's a a risk henry though that rather than um strict government regulation on some of these issues especially around health what we'll see is 
more voluntary agreements and there's you know a pretty bad track record of these voluntary agreements the responsibility deal everything through to those on reporting on food waste how important is it to have that sort of stick approach rather than rather than just rely on the carrot it is completely unfair on companies to 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 use voluntary measures only because what happens is if you do them uh you basically get your business taken away by less scrupulous competitors that's the problem you know they just fill the space and so you need to change you fundamentally need to change what it takes to be successful as a food producer and that requires something stronger than voluntary regulation uh, the reason that we we spent a long time thinking about what the right tools were and so you have tools uh, at one end you have kind of restrictions and i'm sure we'll come on to talk about what's happening with promotion and advertising restrictions those i think are good things but they have the problem that people can work their way around them they can break the rules so for example we're already hearing about people cereal manufacturers creating in aisle gondola ends so you know you have an all singing all shining led lit up area where you put your sugary cereal um uh, and you also get potentially things that become quite complicated for manufacturers and for for food companies so only the big companies can do them and that's why in the end we went for the tax having spent a long time with business and economists because the sugar and salt tax effectively is the simplest most direct way to intervene on the economics of the system and it will intervene it in a way that doesn't make food uh, predominantly more expensive but that shifts the quality of the food that you eat and that's why we went for that. I actually think that it is going to be politically impossible even though I don't think that will increase the cost of food because it will lead to reformulation. I don't think it's doable now. So I think what the government needs to be doing uh, and I'm talking to them about this is recognizing the junk food cycle and then working out i think the, the tax will happen at some point but working out what can be done that is politically doable to lead up to that and it may be that you extend it in certain areas it may be that you kind of you show the direction of travel um and i think there's some other things you might be able to do but so that is but you need you know in answer to your question voluntary does not work it is a it, it's it's a it's an it, these things feed it. Like it's called a kind of reinforcing feedback loop. They feed into each other. We eat more of it. They spend more marketing um, pounds on it, more development on it. We eat more, and we get sick. And they get fired if they don't do it. You know, if if you don't do it, you don't grow your profits. You'll get fired. And if you sit there, you can't tell your board, "I'm not going to spend money on this stuff that's the most profitable part and the, and the growing part of our line." It's just not going to work. Henry, notwithstanding the fact that the, the food strategy may be delayed, what's your feeling? What's your gut instinct for what we're going to end up with? Um, is there that appetite for delivering the really transformational change in our food system that essentially you set out in your strategy, or, or do you fear that? Ultimately, it will be considered too too difficult, both practically and politically. The change will happen because uh, it's a question of when it happens. Because as the NHS costs more and more, and what that means is we have less and less to spend on anything else because the NHS is protected spend. And we increasingly see the impact of climate change and environmental destruction. The need to act, and in fact... 
if we leave it too late, the, the radical nature of that action will increase. So the question is not when, sorry, the question is not whether, but when. Uh, and that is something that is impossible to predict. So what, what you have to do, I think, you know, because it, it's caught up, as we see now, in political ideologies, who's in power, what the events, what's in the news, when you get those moments of political capital that people can spend on on taking long-term actions. And so what I'm focused on is continuing to, to communicate, kind of the, 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 tell the story about how the food system really works, that makes it easier when those moments happen, when you have the opportunity, the political capital, the news agenda that enables you to make the big changes, to make it easier to do those earlier than later. But I would... I, I think it's impossible to predict whether that will be in a year, two years, or five years when we'll actually get really serious, proper action that's required to, to shift the system into another mode of operation. And are food businesses up for the challenge, do you feel? I mean, I know you touched on a cereal manufacturer there. And my sense is always that perhaps manufacturers are last to fall in line because for a lot of them, they have quite narrow product portfolios and they rely heavily, as you were alluding to, on the margins from those unhealthy products. But but retailers and, and food service operators, do you feel they're up for the challenge of food system transformation? Are there still pockets of resistance that you find? Fundamentally, uh, yes, I, I do. But the only people who I found to be resolutely in denial of the facts of the Food and Drink Federation, but that's because they're paid to do that job. They're paid to slow things down. And so that's kind of, you know... And in fact, Ian Wright, I thought, was a great guy, but uh, he was just, you know, he was paid to say, government intervention won't work, we'll do it ourselves. And, you know, we know that's not true. So I think that there is definitely the will to do it. Uh, But I think two things uh, kind of put a break on that. And you've alluded to one of them. So... Uh, if you look at the, the people who are most free to move are the supermarkets because they effectively will be selling the food, whatever uh, whatever that food is. But if you look at, you know, Unilever or P&G, while they will, or, or in fact, you know, big food manufacturers, while they recognise the problems that we have, uh, they make, you know, over in this country 50% of their money, of money on processed foods, comes from stuff that makes it bad. So it's a big shift in their portfolios. And they have huge assets. They have factories that they spent a lot of money on to make this stuff. So it's not like you can just, unlike, you know, a supermarket can just start buying stuff from someone else, whereas these companies are really stuck. So I think it is more difficult. So I think the structural breaks are one thing. And then the other thing is simply capacity. So, you know, if anyone who's run a business or or managed a unit of a business will know that one day you will be uh, energised and you'll understand the bigger picture and you'll want to change the business for the better. And the next day, you'll get a price hike increase. One of your delivery lorries will get stuck. Your best marketeer will leave you. Um, you'll get, you know, and, 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 and suddenly you're just like, oh, God, you know, it's, it's difficult. This is hard. It's not easy. So I think that there will be change. But I think that, that just these are complicated businesses with a lot of moving parts. And some of them have st- uh, large structural elements that make the, make the change difficult for them. 
How about the the, the big fast food chains, Henry? Um, what role is there for them going forward? We were talking just briefly before about the um, move by Burger King to have one of its restaurants completely plant-based. Fast food, can it become more sustainable, healthier? Uh, so I think they have a huge role to play in the environmental impacts of what they do. Um, so you know, if you look at the environment and what you could do uh, to improve the environment, meat, reducing meat eating is by far the single largest thing you could do. And it's not just because of the methane that ruminants produce, it's because of the land they take up. 85% of the land that we use in the UK, almost half of which, by the way, is abroad, so we use more than our, more than our own footprint to feed ourselves. Uh, 85% of that is used to grow crops to feed to animals uh, or, to, or, or as pasture. So... Uh, we need to use that land for other things. We need to sequester carbon in it. We need to restore biodiversity. We need some of that land back. And that is actually, with relatively small, we say 30% reductions in meat eating, you could free up huge amounts of land overnight. If that happened, you would uh, reduce the, hugely reduce the environmental footprint of our food. And, you know, as you said, I think there's huge opportunity for, for, for uh, restaurants to do that. In the United States, Burger King... 10% of their burgers already are impossible burgers, are uh, uh, meat-free burgers. And interestingly, I think half of those are bought by people who also buy meat. So it's not just kind of rag, radical vegans, it's just people who want to eat a little less meat. And I think there is huge opportunity for the fast food companies there. And, you know, you could see it, for example, if you look at animal welfare, uh, in this country, we massively... We, we, we beat the time, the, the target that the EU had set for uh, increasing the number of free-range eggs versus cage eggs. And we did that because McDonald's decided that it was going to use free-range eggs. And overnight, because of the amount that they were buying, they just kind of changed the supply chain. Suddenly it sent a message to the market this was going to happen and all the chicken farmers invested in free-range eggs. So I think that they have huge impact there. On the health front, I think they're really going to struggle. So, you know, if you speak to the fast food people, they will say, you know, it's an affordable treat. It's a little bit of pleasure. You know, it is, you know, Andy Warhol said, you know, the thing about a, a can of Coke is that it is the same for the president of the United States and you or me and someone shining the shoes. They all got the same can of Coke. And it's that kind of just like affordable pleasure. And that's true. But for a lot of their customers, that is true. But unfortunately, there is a significant tail of their customers who are stuck in the junk food cycle, eat that stuff too much, and it's making them sick. And I think that is much harder for them. I think it's, always, it's very difficult for them unilaterally to solve. So I think that they are. Uh, there's a lot of hope in one area, but a, a real problem in the other area. And funnily enough, what was interesting is talking to the fast food companies they were probably more in denial than, than, than the, uh, the, the CEOs of the fast-moving consumer good companies or the people who are making the crisps and the chips. That they, kind of, they got it, whereas the fast-food companies would say, well, you know, on average, people only come to us, Henry, they only come to us once every fortnight. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not, that's not causing obesity. It's a treat. And I would say, well, can you give me the numbers for the, your top 10% of customers? How often they come back? Can they come to you? 
because this is a bell curve, right? It's not everyone, it's people at the right-hand side, and I never got that data back from anyone. So I think they've slightly got their head in the sands about that. Um, but that doesn't stop them. You know, the fact that they're using that food, they have a huge role to play on, on environmental things, and we need to work out how the state can intervene to make it easier for them to be healthier. Well, look, you touched on data there, Henry, and, and one of your recommendations was that there should be a statutory duty for all food companies um, with, with over 250 employers, I think, um, to publish an annual report with uh, various sets of metrics, um, sales of HFSS, HFSS foods and sales of proteins by type, food waste. Um, getting accurate data out of food service businesses has historically been very difficult. Now, Public Health England tried and largely failed with its sugar reformulation program. RAP is having trouble with food waste. How do we change this? How do we get good quality, reliable data out of the out-of-home sector? Because it's, it's kind of there for retailers, isn't it? Supermarket data is pretty robust generally, but the out-of-home sector, that, that, data, that reporting and data is just not on the same level. Well, I, th- I think it's better than, than people think. And I would say, you know, don't, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Most large businesses now, over the, you know, most businesses with more than 250 employees who, are, who have recipes that are, who have dishes that are used in more than one branch, and we'll come on to, to where they're cooking from scratch in, in, in different restaurants, will have a, uh, a till system that links to a stock system that contains those recipes and they will be able to tell you in theory if or obviously we all deal with the fact that our cooks and our chefs and we don't always get the recipe right but in theory they'll be able to tell you what they're selling and they will also be recording any good business will be recording its waste incredibly carefully because it's very expensive so i actually think that the large the, 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 the most uh food companies have that data internally we are all worried about how good it is internally and people who've run those businesses as i have you know that is a concern but in theory it is there and i think that therefore asking for it and getting people to present it is not a stage for and yes some people so there will be not very many but there will be chains of um uh, who, who, where all all of the chefs make their own recipes from scratch and they cook, but it's it's, it's very, a very tiny proportion, to be honest, of those big food businesses. So I think that the you know the data is not as good as supermarkets because supermarkets basically have things in packets, whereas we have chefs in our restaurants who are weighing things out all the time, and they might over portion or under portion, and you know there is there are those variables, but. In theory, we know what they're selling, and I think it's better to to start reporting it. Now, if you ask McDonald's, for example, to link their tills to their uh, to their recipes, you get a very good idea of what they're selling. You know, it might be five percent out here or there, but you you know, basically, you'd know. And what's interesting is the food companies. You know, just just recently, a whole bu- a whole bunch of food CEOs wrote a letter to the gut to defra saying we want this to happen so i think this is an area where people are actually they're kind of interested in the transparency yeah and i think one interesting area of using data as well henry which was also you know picked up in your strategy was using some of this data to communicate to people to nudge their behaviors 
and there I'm talking about eco-labeling of products or on menus. And we've covered this in quite a lot of detail in recent months. There's a lot of schemes popping up here, there and everywhere, looking at everything from carbon to wrapping um, fair wages and staff well-being, pesticides, chemicals, everything into one sort of eco-score or omni-label. And I know in your strategy, you suggested that this is maybe something that should be led by the FSA, DEFRA, IGD. So we have one label, which is what they're also trying to do in Europe. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you see as the role for eco-labelling and whether it is one of the big triggers to shifting to sustainable diets or maybe it's a very expensive one that doesn't have as much impact so i think that the the primary effect of labeling is on how the company operates rather than on what the customer buys so all of us live incredibly busy lives and there may be some of us who will only buy you know, Rainforest Alliance or Fair Trade or Red Tractor or, you know, I could go on. But, you know, if you talk to, you know, the supermarket bosses, they'll say the one, the one thing that does make a difference is a union jack on things. We're quite, we're quite nationalistic and that, but basically everything else is a fringe, is a fringe thing for different segments of people, many of whom would be able to find that information out anyway. But what it does is it gives the impetus inside the company. So, uh, and I know this from experience, when you start to say, okay, well, let's put calorie labeling on everything, you're suddenly looking at all your dishes and you're thinking, Christ, that's got 1,500 calories. That seems like a lot too, but does it need to have that? Can we reformulate it? Could we do another dish? Uh, And the same with kind of environmental stuff. So I think the value of labeling actually is to do the smaller stuff where companies are by mistake just because they got so much on selling food that is environmentally more damaging than it needs to be or less healthy than it needs to be i don't think that labeling alone will solve the big you know you will only seek to improve your food to meet those labels up to a certain premium so I don't think it solves the problem, but I think it is a good way for companies to um, to, uh, to 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 create discipline internally. In terms of who does that labelling, um, I'm quite resistant to the idea of just one government mark because what consumers want changes. And uh, a government work would inevitably be, just because the way government works, slow to respond to changes in the science and what's good and what's bad, etc. But I do think the government has a role to play in defining the measures. So creating, for example, uh, a, a set of standard metrics, farm metrics. How do I measure soil carbon? How do I measure biodiversity collapse? So that we at least, in the same way that we all know what a you know a meter used to be a a platinum bar that was held in a uh, 
a, a storeroom in Paris. It's at a certain temperature. It's now defined as a certain number of wavelengths of a particular frequency of light is the, is the definition of a meter. And we do need to have those kind of definitions for this stuff. So that then the people creating the labels, when you buy them, you know that the measurements are sound. And for example, particular good example would be carbon sequestration. When you look at the, the, the claims people are making about their carbon, you know that there is kind of a credit, government accredited scheme that this isn't being double counted, this isn't a fake measure, this isn't greenwashing. Yes, and of course that links back to corporate net zero targets as well and, and some of the, um, the, the claims that are perhaps being made around the potential for regenerative farming to deliver significant re- reductions in scope three emissions uh, and perhaps not quite, not quite with the level of detail yet about what those indicators for regenerative farming are and, and how, to what extent they, they will deliver that reduction. Um, I just want to touch on public procurement, Henry, because it's, it's a, you know, perhaps less, um, uh, less frequently touched upon side of the out-of-home market, but it's significant. And it's also an area where the government really does have a lever to encourage more sustainable diets. Um, and you recommended a redesign of the government buying standards for food within the strategy um, to ensure that taxpayer money is spent on healthy, sustainable food. Have you, have you sort of fleshed out your thoughts in terms of what, what those standards would look like to your mind? Um, would they, for example, include more targets for serving less meat and meat produced to higher standards? So, yes, but I th- I, in terms of kind of what is required here, at the moment you have a very weak set of uh, guidelines that are, um, that are voluntary. And so it says, unless there's significant cost, and you're like, hey, what significant cost? You know, is that a pound? Is that two pounds? Is that 5%, 1%? And so they're pretty ineffective. The, the place they are effective is in schools where, I mean, actually I chaired the group that uh, back in 2013 that came up with the food-based school food standards uh, where they are compulsory, although they're not monitored. I think that the first thing the government needs to do is to set out what it thinks of as uh, healthier uh, and sustainable food. And so, for example, I mean, the standards that we had, because we were trying to hit certain levels of heme iron, said that you should serve meat every day in a school. I actually think that's not right anymore and that those should be changed to allow people to serve, you know, more legumes, more iron, iron vegetables, but reduce the amount of meat. So the first thing I think the government needs, which it doesn't say, is what does this look like? The second thing they need to do is to enable people to buy uh to, uh, government organizations to buy good primary ingredients cheaply and that is where the recommendation about the buying hubs come comes in so and i'm just going to step back a bit i i run a charity founded a charity called chefs and schools which has uh taken over or retrained the cooks in about 60 schools and is working with a with another few hundred in a in a local authority borough, and they cook from scratch. We do food to the same cost and much higher quality than most of the schools, but well, certainly the schools than when we take over. And, and we do that because we have a, a buying app whereby the chefs in those schools are able to buy really great ingredients at a good price from 
a, a bunch of different local British producers. They're not buying off the back of the of the wholesaler's truck with the same old stuff. And it is very, very difficult at the moment for small companies to sell their food to prisons, government offices, um, schools and hospitals. It is a market dominated by the resellers. And I think the, fir- the next thing is, once you've set the standard and said what you want to happen, is to enable that purchasing. And then the final step is, I think, to to say which elements of that are compulsory versus where they have freedom. But unless you free the mind, there's no point in putting in rules until you've set the vision and given people the capability to deliver it. Yes. And and, and what you touched on there, there are, I understand, pilots of, I think they call it dynamic procurements, don't they, whereby local suppliers... In the southwest. In the southwest, that's right, can access these bigger contracts. Um, and I think there have been um, proposals to roll that out more extensively. So, yeah, we'll, work, we'll wait to see on that front. Um, keen to touch on trade as well, Henry, before we close, because um, my sense from reading the strategy was that you had some concerns around the direction of travel on trade policy as it relates to food um, and the risk of essentially outshoring our environmental impact, yeah. uh, offshoring, sorry, our, our environmental impact, outsourcing. Uh, so you're strengthening domestic regulations and, and agricultural policies, but you're you know, still allowing stuff produced to inferior standards overseas to come in. Have you, che- you, know, have you been reassured in any respect since you published your report? We've since seen a deal with the New Zealand signed, or do you still have those same concerns? So this is effectively a... a, a ideological battle going on between different kinds of Brexiteers. So it's pretty, to most people, you know, it's pretty, uh, they they don't really understand what's going on. But basically, you have a group of Brexiteers in the Tory party who were free traders who thought Brexit was about more globalisation, international free trade, raising prosperity globally, reducing prices, and creating a more competitive, happier world where everyone was richer. You then had another group who thought Brexit was about taking back control and taking back control of our standards. So it was about sovereignty, it was about being able to do things that we valued, maintain standards that, we've, that, we, uh, that we thought were important. And obviously those two uh, groups have very different views in terms of what trade was. So you have one group who's saying... It, it is insane, and I, and, uh, I have uh, this is the the argument that I said out. It's insane to kind of try to create a certain standard of food production in this country, and then just import a whole bunch of food that's grown over uh, abroad in ways that are cruel to animals, destroy the environment, and destroy the environment, and release more carbon. And you know, uh, fair dues. You know, th- there are people abroad who will be able because of their climates will be able to produce food that even when brought here is is more environmentally friendly and cheaper and good on them we should be embracing that but the trade deals need to be able to distinguish between those two groups and the australian and new zealand trade deals don't do don't distinguish between those two groups because the government needed to get something over the line you had a very ideological trade sector in liz truss at the time uh, and they pushed over these trade deals that, that that did not protect the standards of farmers that broke the Conservative manifesto that said it would do that. 
because of the way trade deals flow and the way trade goes, it's probably not those two trade deals won't be a disaster because it's not going to flood the market with cheap food because they're selling most of their meat, for example, to, to Asia, not, not to us and to the Middle East. But if we did a similar trade deal with Brazil, say, that we've done with them, it would be an absolute environmental disaster. And I am, I, th- I am actually at the moment, but let's see what comes out in the white paper, I think that that has been realised by government uh, and that you might see a change of tone. But, you know, it's all these things. They go round for right around. The government departments red pen them. They go to and fro and to and fro until a final form of words is sorted out. So let's see what, what the final form of words says on trade. But I am, I certainly know that this is something that in DEFRA, the ministers feel very strongly about, and I think that the position has, has uh, uh, their position has become more um, uh, widely felt across the government. I suppose the risk is that you've set your benchmark with those Australia-New Zealand deals, and if you're Brazil or the US, your, you know, first negotiations waving those trade deals around, saying we want the same. Yeah, I think there are two risks. That that, that is a risk. Um, you would have to, you know, you'd have to, you, you've weakened your negotiating position. The other risk that people uh, kind of laughed at me for saying um, a couple of months ago was that if for geopolitical reasons, China stopped buying meat from Australia and New Zealand, they would have an awful lot of meat to dump on other markets. And suddenly we would have a problem. Um, and, and and that's fine. You know, some of the meat, for example, that New Zealand grows, the lamb is environmentally well reared and humanely reared. But in Australia, they're still clearing forest to graze cattle, and they regularly mules, which is cutting off the, the kind of the the rumps of of sheep, often without anaesthetic, stop them getting blowfly, which is just a horrifically cruel practice. And that uh, lambs that had been reared to mothers who had been mules would be coming over to this country, as would inc- beef with an incredibly high carbon footprint, which isn't right. We're, we come to the end of our time, Henry, but I'd like, if I may, just to ask you one further question. Uh, clearly, you can't transform the food system with with piecemeal policies with, with in isolation. But if you had to choose one recommendation from your strategy that hasn't yet been implemented, that, that you feel absolutely has to be in the government's white paper, what would it be? It's not a recommendation. It's an idea. Because I, the first thing you need to change a system is to change an idea. And it is the idea that... Uh, on the environmental side, what I call the invisibility of nature, which is we need to start building the value of nature into our food system. At the moment, the way we measure success, uh, you can't find nature and you can't count it in your wallet. You can't see it in the balance sheets of companies. It's not in the GDP of countries. We need to find a way of making nature visible. And then that will shift the whole system. And on the health side, they need to recognize the junk food cycle. They need to recognize that you need to tackle that commercial incentive of companies because unless you do that you're going to fail so for me it's the ideas of the junk food cycle and the invisibility of nature that are most important the government explicitly recognizes and everything else flows from changing ideas well henry it's been a fascinating discussion for us and i hope for listeners too so thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me a huge thank you to our guest henry dimbleby 
and thank you to Coca-Cola Europe Pacific Partners for your support in making these podcasts possible. This podcast was produced by the Footprint Media Group. To find out more, visit foodservicefootprint.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>